Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 26 is where we are tonight, working through the catechism a question or two at a time. And we are um, in this section of the catechism, which is about Christ, our mediator and redeemer, the God-man who has been perfectly equipped as our mediator and redeemer to be our Savior. And we've been looking at his offices. He has three offices that he fulfills, prophet, priest, and king. We've seen how he fulfills the office of prophet. We've seen how he fulfills the office of a priest. And now tonight we turn our attention to the third of these, how he fulfills this office of a king. So I'll read the question, If then you'll respond with the answer. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, and ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Now let's turn to the scriptures. Uh, Our Old Testament text is Psalm 8. That's on um, page 483 in the Pew Bible. Psalm 8, starting verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet." all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And over to our New Testament text and the sermon text for tonight, Ephesians chapter 1. We'll read verses 15 to 23. Uh, We'll really start focusing in uh, verse 19 through the end of the chapter, but we'll read verses 15 to 23 here. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, 
not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you give us that spirit of wisdom and understanding and the knowledge of Christ, even of that which we've just read, that we would know the hope to which you've called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. And show us the goodness and glory of Christ our King and show us his power and show us what that means for us. Teach not only our minds, teach our minds and our hearts and our wills. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How would you describe God's power as it's at work in your life and as it's at work in the church? How would you describe uh, how, how you see Christ carrying out his rule and his reign? What kind of power does he have? What kind of authority does he have? What do you see at work in your life? What do you see at work in the church? We might be tempted at times, perhaps, to look around and not think very highly of his power. Uh, We look around, we see the obvious power of the earthly kingdoms around us, those things set against Christ, the powers of this present darkness, this present evil age, as Paul calls it. We look at the world and we see the state of the church today. Maybe we see, maybe we see another church. Maybe we see our church. And we see, we see people leaving or we see uh, discouragement happening. We see, uh, it seems like so often the churches that are staying faithful to the word of God are shrinking. And those that are teaching what people want to hear are growing. Where's the power of Christ to grow his church, to bless his church? And, and what about our own hearts and lives? I see the sin there. I see my, my struggles there with sanctification and, and the ongoing, you know, the strength of indwelling sin so much stronger than I, than I want it to be. Where's Christ's power? What's his power like in me? This is nothing new, is it? I mean, as Paul's writing to the Ephesians, I think they're going through something very similar. He wants them to know he's been praying for them and He's writing here what what he's been praying for them. And he brings this prayer that he's writing to them to to a culmination in verses 19 to 23. And as he does there, as he brings his prayer to a climax there in those verses, he tells them that he wants them to know, among other things, he wants them to know just how powerful God is through Christ and his reign as king in their lives. The Ephesians needed to hear this. I mean, they could walk down the street in Ephesus and they could see the temple of Artemis. Huge, beautiful temple, imposing structure. And they could see the evident might of Rome, right, all around them. They've never seen Jesus. They've not much outward sign of his kingdom, no temple to Christ in the city. Their church is probably just meeting in someone's house. What kind of king is this? What kind of power does he have if we can't see it in the way we can see this, the, the power of the kings of earth? It's a kingdom that appears weak and insignificant. A king without much power. 
And Paul says, you need to know. You need to know that Jesus is the King with unmatched power. There's no king like Christ. No king with the power he has. He has world-dominating power, Paul says. They need to be reminded of this. They need to know it. By that, Paul means they don't just need to understand it in their minds, but they need to get it down into their hearts. Christ is the all-powerful king. They need to know that. They need to experience that. So do we, right? We need to know this. We need to understand what it means that God through Christ is wielding unmatched power in His church, in us, in our lives, at work in these powerful ways. As we, as we see these verses here, Paul is unpacking for us the power of God through Christ the King. And as we look at these verses, we don't see Jesus explicitly called King. He's not called the king, you know, explicitly anywhere in this passage. But the kingship of Christ, I think, is, is clearly in view. In verse 20, he, Paul describes Jesus as seated at God's right hand, position of power and authority and kingship, right? Verse 21, he describes Jesus as being above every principality and power and might and dominion. He's saying Jesus is the king of kings. He is the king over every earthly king. Verse 22, he then tells us God has put all things under Jesus' feet. Echoing Psalm 8, as we'll see later on, he says that Jesus is the one under whom are all things. He's got authority over everything. So no, he doesn't say explicitly that Jesus is the king, but everything in the chapter is telling us, and everything in these verses is telling us that Jesus is the all-powerful king. And Paul presents to us four points about what kind of king Jesus is and what kind of power it is that he wields. So let's just look through these uh, four things that Paul lays out for us about this power of Christ, the power of God at work through Jesus Christ the King. First thing we see is that it's a rescuing power. A rescuing power. This is the first thing we see here about the power of God at work through Christ. It's a redeeming power, a saving power. Back up in verses 17 to 18, Paul is praying for the Ephesian church. And he's praying that they would have the eyes of their heart opened. Paul says this is only the work of the Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation in verse 17. It's the Holy Spirit sent by God, uh, uh, sent by Christ, who comes and opens the eyes of people to see and understand the gospel. And so Paul is praying that the Spirit would continue to do this work of, of revealing to people the glories of the Gospel and giving them faith in the Gospel and faith in Christ. And so he's pointing us to the fact that it's the power of God that, that continues this work. It must also be the power of God that began this work. This is a major part of the context here at the end of Ephesians chapter 1 as we then turn into chapter 2 of Ephesians. This becomes even more prominent that this power that, that God is wielding through Christ, sending the Spirit to open blind eyes to see Christ, that this is a rescuing and redeeming power. Um, so if we, if we start to look over into chapter 2, uh, we see that um, Paul is amplifying what he's been saying in, in the end of chapter 1. He's been talking about the power of God, revealing the gospel to the, the Ephesians, and then he goes on in Ephesians 2 to talk about how we have been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. So let's listen to Ephesians 2, verses 1 
and following. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. Paul's making the same point, or a very similar point there. God has rescued us through his divine power. He came when we were dead and rotting without any spiritual life in us, and he brought us to life. We had no faith in us. We had no righteousness in us. We had not the slightest inclination to choose Christ or his gospel. No love for God at all. No hope of seeing and responding and understanding. We were dead, Paul says. But God's power rescued us. His power saved us. He breathed life into our dead bodies into our dead souls, and brought us to that new spiritual life in Christ. This is what the Catechism is talking about when it says there, uh, when it says um, that Christ subdues us to himself. This is his rescuing power at work, winning us to himself by his sovereign power. Paul puts it this way in the sister letter to Ephesians, Colossians. Colossians 1, verses 13 to 14, he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Loved ones, this is your spiritual autobiography. Right? We, we, whether you experienced it in a dramatic way, like Paul on the road to Damascus, or Luther when he almost gets struck by lightning, Right, and there's that dramatic conversion. Or if you, you've never known a day when you didn't love and trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is still your spiritual autobiography. Dead in sin, and Christ came and subdued my heart. My proud, arrogant, God-hating heart. He took it, broke it, captured it, brought it into His kingdom. This is the rescuing power of our King. Isn't it glorious, right, that Christ's power is not like so, you know, when, when, when we, we, we have this say, right, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Not for the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He has absolute power, doesn't he? But how does he wield this power for his elect? He rescues sinners, dead in sin, who hate his kingship. He rescues them makes them part of his kingdom. He rescues us by this power. He redeems us. second thing we see here is that this is resurrection power. This power that God is uh, wielding through Christ the King is a resurrection power. Look with me at verses 19 through 20. According to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. 
Paul's saying to the Ephesians, the power of God I'm talking about here, which is at work in you, this great power, this exceeding power, is the same power that God used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, I used to understand that more as, more as Paul saying, that this tells us about uh, the, the degree to which God's power is at work. And that's true. It, I think it does. That, 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 um, that the amount of God's power, or the powerfulness of God's power, we might say, is the same at work in us as it was when he raised Christ from the dead. And what tremendous power that is. That's true, I think. But I think Paul is not only saying that, I think he's also saying this. The same, the same kind of power is at work in you as was at work in the resurrection of Jesus. The same kind. What, what do we mean there? That, that um, what God did in raising Jesus Christ from the dead is exactly what he's doing in Christians now. Right? As he comes and he converts you, as he regenerates you, gives you that new life, he's doing exactly the same thing that he did when he raised Jesus from the dead. In the sense that he's taking that principle of resurrection and he is planting it in our hearts. In the resurrection of Jesus, God is starting the new creation. He is uh, bringing new life to his son. He's raising him up from the dead by his spirit. He's giving him this, this new resurrection life, his reward for his suffering and his obedience. Jesus has this new glorified body. He's passed beyond death. He's gone into eternal life, his reward forever and ever because of his resurrection. And Paul is saying that same resurrection life is also at work in you, Christian. Now, our bodies haven't been transformed yet. It's only a matter of time because the seed of the resurrection has been sown in our hearts. God has united us to our Lord Jesus Christ. We're united to the resurrected Christ. And that means that we ourselves have His life and resurrection power coursing through our spiritual veins. He's at work in us. It's only a matter of time till we too enter that resurrection life in all its fullness, right? Not only in our souls, but also in our bodies. This is why in just a few verses in chapter 2, again, as we, we just looked at chapter 2, but we look there again, Paul's going to write there about how we were dead, but then what? We were made alive together with Christ. He's talking about Christ's resurrection and how that's applied to us. And that gives us this new spiritual life, the power of his resurrection coursing through us, pulsing through us, giving us this new life. This is the power of Christ, that King, right? Our, our King. He's, um, he's subdued us. He's rescued us. And the kind of power that's at work on us now is the same power that raised Him from the dead, giving us eternal life. That's the second thing. The third thing we see here about this power of Christ is that it's a restraining power. You see there in the Catechism, it talks about in, this, uh, in the final the final clause there, in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And that's exactly what we see Paul describing in verses 21 to 22 here, how Christ's power as king is a power that restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. 
The text says, starting in verse 21, far above all authority and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet. So Christ has been raised, raised from the dead and raised all the way into heaven and sits on the right hand of God in all power and all authority. He's the king. He's reigning. And what's he doing with this power? Right, he tells his disciples, Matthew 28, 17, Jesus says as he's preparing to ascend, I've got all authority in heaven and on earth now. All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Paul's saying the same thing about Jesus Christ. What's this power for? Well, it's, it's for restraining and conquering his enemies. It's for, it's for judging and, and uh, destroying the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a power over all creation, and especially those who are the enemies of God and his people. It is Christ's uh, power here as he restrains and conquers God's enemies. It's by this power that he's going to defeat the nations and uh, defeat all those who stand against God. As Paul refers to these uh, principalities, powers, might, dominion, he's referring to the kingdoms of the earth that set themselves against the Lord and his anointed, as we read of in Psalm 2. He's, he's referring to the powers of darkness, the spiritual powers of, of uh, the devil and his kingdom that set themselves against Christ and his kingdom. And he's telling us that there's not one square inch, right? As, as Abraham Kuyper famously said, not one square inch over which Christ does not say, this is mine. He has all power. All authority. So to the Ephesian church, Artemis and her fine temple, she's under the feet of Christ. Caesar in Rome, with all that military might at his disposal, under the foot of Christ. Satan, the prince of the power of the air, he's on a leash. He's under the foot of Christ. He is under Christ's dominion and authority. Any government that sets itself against Christ and his kingdom, Christ is sovereign over it, superintending it. We can, and we can expand this, this principle and we can make a catalog, make a list of, of all the enemies that we face as Christians. All the enemies that are the enemies of God, right? We, we've mentioned the devil, the tempter, and his, his work as he tempts us and accuses us and does everything he can to make us forsake Christ. He's powerful, far more powerful than we are. What's our hope? It's that Christ restrains and conquers him. That he's already under Christ's feet. Christ's foot is already crushing him. It has, to, it has done so. It will, it will do so. What about, um, what about uh, our flesh, our tendency to sin, the indwelling sin within us? Is Christ king over this as well? Is this under his foot? Is he also more powerful than, than my indwelling sin? Absolutely he is. How about the world, the authorities of this world which set themselves against the Lord, right? And, and the way the culture tempts us with such a powerful pull. Is Christ sovereign over them too? Absolutely. How about, how about the final enemy? Death. Christ sovereign over death? Absolutely. He came, he laid down his life, killed death by his death, rose again, Death is now his tool and his servant. It's no match for him. All right, so, so all the enemies that we face, every single one of them is no match for Christ. Can't hold a candle to his power. Can't threaten the Christian in the least. 
Now, it's, it's true that often we look around and the enemies of Christ, the enemy of Christ's church, can appear strong and they can appear like they're getting the victory. And, and the church of Christ can look downtrodden and humiliated and forsaken. But we need to look not with the eyes of the flesh, but with the eyes of faith at what Christ promises us here. Right? We look over at Romans 8, and Paul there talks about the things that can't separate us from the love of God in Christ. The things that can't break or overcome His power and His love for us. And he has a long list of things that will try and threaten to and appear to. Nakedness, famine, danger, sword, goes on. The powers of darkness will appear at times to have the upper hand. But Paul says, Paul says that uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, loved ones, keep this in mind. Every enemy you face in the Christian life, whatever it might be, every enemy you face in the Christian life is under the sovereign rule of Christ, your King. Uh, there, there, is, there is no enemy you face that is stronger than your Lord Jesus Christ, your King. And so you have, you have Christ there to be your help and your strength. No matter what it is, whatever enemy it might be, the world, the flesh, the devil, death itself, the suffering that leads to it, they're all restrained by Christ and they're under His feet. This should give us such confidence, courage, hope, shouldn't it? In our Christian walk. The fourth thing is we see that uh, Christ's power is a ruling power. We saw His uh, rescuing power, His resurrection power, His restraining power. Fourth and finally, His ruling power. Christ's power is not only restraining evil and conquering His enemies, it's also ruling His church. He's king for His church. He's ruling over His church. Verses 22b through 23, Paul writes, He gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body. God gave Christ to be the head and king of His church. He made Christ with this, you know, He made Christ to be, to be a gift to the church. He gave Christ to the church as our King, right? What's Jesus exercising all this awesome authority and power for? For you. For His church. Right? He's, not, he's not doing this um, uh, abstractly. He's not just... Uh, uh, this isn't just a concept. This is a reality that Christ the King is superintending everything by His almighty power for you. For our church here. It's a glorious thing that, that the King of Heaven is ruling over us. What resources does He have? Right? He has every resource to bless us, to bring us along in the Christian life, to get us to glory, to make us to persevere. He's using all His power to bless us for our good. What, a con- what, what great confidence that should give us. The Catechism tells us here that as Christ rules us, this means two things. It says they're in the middle there and ruling and defending us. And that's what Paul's describing here. Christ rules us as our King and He defends us as our King. He talks about how Christ rules the church, how He's the head of the church. He's got authority over the church. And that means He's the King. What does that mean? Well, He's ruling us. That means He's in charge. That means that we follow where He goes. We, we do what He says. 
Um, he's got all authority over us. There's not a single area in our life we can seal off, shut the door, say, Christ, you can't go in that room. You can have the rest of the house, but that's mine. Nope, it's all his. And, and uh, he, he tells us what we are to do as a church. There's not an aspect of our church life he's not sovereign over in which he does not call the shots. So we've got to give up our own, you know, our attempts to build our own petty little kingdoms and hang on to our own agendas and submit ourselves entirely to King Jesus. He rules us. How does he rule us? He's in heaven. We're on earth. How does he, how does he rule us? Well, it's by his word and his spirit. He's not left us as orphans, right? He's given us his spirit, as John reminds us in his gospel. Um, uh, he's given us his spirit, and the spirit takes the word and leads us and rules us and governs us by his word. And Christ gives officers to his church, as Paul goes on to talk about in Ephesians chapter 4. He gives, he gives, he gives uh, pastors and elders and deacons to his church to guide them and shepherd them. And um, elders specifically are called to be under shepherds of Christ, the chief shepherd, ruling on Christ's behalf over the church. This is how he rules us. We need to submit to his rule. Follow it. Bow to him. Not only does he rule us, he also defends us. He defends his church. No danger can reach us that he does not allow. No harm can come against us, loved ones, that he has not purposed for his glory and our good. We saw this this morning in Sunday school. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. The city of Satan will not prevail against the city of Christ. No weapon fashioned against the church shall succeed. No spiritual enemy that sets himself against us will succeed in the long run. That wonderful hymn, The, the um, Church's One Foundation, has a verse that, that goes like this. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord, to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. That's what Christ our King is doing. Defending us, guiding us, sustaining us, cherishing us, keeping us in the shadow of his wings. What can harm us there? His faithfulness is our shield and buckler, as Psalm 91 reminds us. He's our king, defends us. This is illustrated so well in um, Pilgrim's Progress. There's so many dangers that Christian faces as he goes through uh, you know, his pilgrimage to the celestial city. And uh, at one point in this story, he's, Christ, uh, Christian is going along, and he, the path leads through these two lions, and they're, they're raging, hungry lions, Right, right, and they're there on either side of the path, and it looks like they're going to, to kill whoever tries to walk through that path. But Christian knows that the king will keep him and guard him, so he walks carefully through between the two lions, and, and then he, he, he sees that they're chained, that they can't reach him. Now, in the Christian life, Oftentimes, there are things that look like that, aren't there? Right? There, there are those dangers that look like they're going to tear us apart. We need to remember, Christ the King is sovereign over those. And maybe, maybe they will, in a sense. Right? Maybe the lions aren't chained. Um, maybe, maybe there will be pain and difficulty and suffering. Often there is. Right? Christian's companion, one of his companions, becomes a martyr in the story of Pilgrim's Progress. But, but what is the truth here? It's that even though we do go through these difficulties and it feels like oftentimes uh, uh, the, the, the persecution or the suffering that we're going through 
uh, does reach us and hurt us, Christ is still our defender. This is illustrated really well um, in the life of the Apostle Paul towards the end of his life over in 2 Timothy 4. He is on trial for his life before Caesar, um, and he's been abandoned by most of his um, most of his co-workers and friends in the church there in Rome, it seems, uh, to have forgotten him. And he's there, he's on trial all by himself. And uh, he's writing to Timothy about it. And he says to him in, in 2 Timothy 4, 17 to 18, The Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his kingdom. Now, Paul writes that, and we, we don't know if he means when he says that God rescued him from the lion's mouth. Does he mean that Caesar gave him another day to live? Does he, does he mean he's been acquitted? Well, we know that eventually, whether it's now or, or later on in Paul's life, he is going to die for the sake of Christ by the order of Caesar. Right, so what does he mean when he says that Jesus rescued him from the lion's mouth? You don't think he means simply, a, 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 you know, temporal rescuing. And safety. He means eternally. God has rescued him from the grips of Satan, and God has rescued him from death. And Paul has nothing to fear, and he knows, right, with all confidence, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He's confident of that. Christ, his king, is his defender, and he will make sure he comes to glory. So, loved ones, what kind of a king? is King Jesus? And what kind of power does he wield in our church and in us? Unmatched power. Rescuing power. Not brute force, not, um, not tyranny, but a power filled with grace and love that, is, that has come down and, and offered his own life for us. Rescuing us from our sin. It's the, it's the power of uh, his resurrection now at work in us restraining his enemies, ruling and defending us. So trust his rule. Trust him and have confidence in your king and his power to save. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, our king. We pray we would bow the knee to him, trust him, rest in him, and have all confidence in him and his almighty power as our king. Father, we thank you for this word uh, from you. We pray you bless it richly to us now and cause us to go out from here equipped, filled with your grace, holding fast to our Lord Jesus. We ask it for his sake. Amen.